Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on current issues in HIV, HCV co-infection. With us today is one of that issue's authors, Dr. Shoba Swaminathan, Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Inc., Merkin Company, and VIIV Healthcare Company. Learning objectives for this audio program include evaluate the use of HCV direct-acting antiviral agents in the treatment of HIV-HCV co-infection, describe effective management of HIV-HCV co-infected patients who have previously been treated for HCV infection, and formulate evidence-based therapies for treating special populations with HIV-HCV co-infection, such as those with advanced liver disease. Dr. Swaminathan has indicated that she has no financial interests or relationships with any commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of her presentation. She has noted that her discussion today will reference the unlabeled or unapproved uses of some of the newer agents being trialed for HIV-HCV co-infection, including rosaprevir, albasavir, and decladosphere, either alone or in combination. I'm Bob Busker. I'm managing editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Swaminathan, thank you for joining us today. Hello, Bob. Thank you so much for inviting me. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you and your co-author, that was Dr. Lisa Deaver, who's also from Rutgers, reviewed some of the recent publications about the newer direct-acting antiviral agents for the treatment of HIV-HCV co-infection. Today, I'd like to discuss how some of that new information can be integrated into clinical practice. Uh, So to start things off, Doctor, let me ask you to present us with a patient. So let's talk about a patient that I saw in the clinic a few months ago. She is a 59-year-old woman with HIV-HCV co-infection genotype 1. Her HIV infection is well-controlled on tenofovir, empricitabine, and valtegravir. Her HIV viral load is less than 20 copies per mil, and her CD4 is 741 cells per cubic mil. She reports prior HCV treatment with pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and telaprovir two years ago, but her treatment was discontinued due to severe anemia, fatigue, and depression. She's here with me now, and she would like to know if she should be treated again for her HCV infection now or should wait for more treatment options. Treating this patient for HCV now or waiting, what factors would influence your recommendation? There are many factors that can help determine if a co-infected patient should be treated now or can choose to defer treatment for a few months or even years. Some of those include the stage of her HIV infection. Control of HIV infection is very important in assessing whether a patient is ready for treatment. In this particular case, my patient is clearly motivated. Her HIV viral load is undetectable. She has a good CD4 count indicating that she's very adherent to therapy. She has previously been treated for hepatitis C virus infection, and although she fails the treatment, both of those are clear indicators that this is a patient who is both motivated, interested, and capable of undergoing hepatitis C treatment again. The other aspect to consider is to assess the stage of her liver disease, and there are many ways that we can do that. We can start with the most easy non-invasive tests, such as the laboratory study. For instance, her liver function tests, such as albumin, prothrombin time, can both be used to see if she has compensated liver disease or if there is any sign of liver cirrhosis. Additional tests, such as Fibrosure and Fibroscan, can also be helpful. Fibrosure is a biomarker that takes into account a person's age, gender, alpha-2 macroglobulin, haptoglobulin, apolipoprotein A, gamma glutamyl transferase, 
total bilirubin and ALT, and it gives a composite number that can then be correlated with the person's extent of liver disease. Fibroscan is another non-invasive test that uses transient elastography to gauge the liver stiffness in the patient. And it was recently approved in the U.S. about 18 months ago, so it's available in select centers in this country. Liver biopsy is the most invasive of these diagnostic options available and was more commonly used a few years ago when our treatment options were limited to pegylated interferons. At the current time, the use of liver biopsy in real-life scenarios is probably very limited. As you've noted, this is a patient who's had prior HCV treatment. How does that affect your options for current therapy? So there have been several studies that have looked at the success of HIV hepatitis C virus treatment in the co-infected population. Some of the studies that have been mentioned in the newsletter include photon 1 and photon 2. Photon 1 was a study looking at HIV and HCV co-infected patients that did not include treatment experienced patients. But the second part of the study, Photon 2, did include a small cohort of patients who were treated with sofosbuvir and ribavirin for 24 weeks and had excellent treatment response. In addition, real-life scenarios such as HCV target included a small proportion of co-infected patients who were treated with the medications sofosbuvir and semeprevir and reported sustained virologic response rates, or in other words, a negative hepatitis C viral load 12 weeks after completion of treatment in excess of 80%. Other two articles that have been mentioned in the newsletter include Turquoise 1, which includes a three-drug regimen of peritaprovir, ombetasvir, desaprovir, given boosted with ritonavir with or without ribavirin for 12 to 24 weeks, And this study included about 30% of patients who were previously treatment experienced. And even that group reported excellent sustained virological response rates, exceeding 90%. The last study presented in the newsletter, C-worthy study, looked at the protease inhibitor Grezoprevir along with the NS5A inhibitor Elbasvir with or without ribavirin for 8, 12, or 18 weeks and that did include some co-infected patients, although naive, and hepatitis C treatment experienced patients, again, with excellent responses. So in this background, I will say that there is enough data moving forward to state that we can use direct acting agents even in patients who have failed previous hepatitis C virus treatment regimens. What additional testing, if any, would you need to perform to determine the best option for this patient? So in addition to the tests that have already been performed, it is very important to make sure that we have the exact genotype of the patient identified. Although the case presents that it's genotype 1, it is important to know whether it's 1A or 1B. The reason for that is there is some evidence in studies that have been presented that suggested that treatment responses may be slightly superior for genotype 1B as compared to genotype 1A. In addition, the role of genotype has a big impact on the treatment duration. For example, in photon 1 study that we discussed, it looked at sofosbuvir plus ribavirin among genotypes 1, 2, and 3 patients. Patients with genotype 1 received the treatment for 24 weeks, and genotypes 2 and 3 received it only for 12 weeks. The cure rates, or SVR12, for genotype 1 were 76%. For genotype 2, 
were 88%, but for genotype 3 treatment naive, it was only 67%, thus showing that for genotype 3, shorter duration of therapy was not as effective as a longer duration of therapy. Based on the above, photon 2, the second part of the study, which also included genotype 4 patients, extended the treatment duration for all genotype 3 patients to 24 weeks of therapy. Electron 2 was also a study that looked at ledipasvir, the medication that's just been approved by the FDA in the past two months, along with sofosbuvir for 12 weeks for genotype 3 patients, and showed excellent cure rates exceeding 70%. It was 73% in the group with cirrhosis and 89% in the group without cirrhosis. So in the end, for this patient, what treatment course did you recommend? For this patient, it was very important for her that she not change her antiretroviral therapy. Her antiretroviral therapy regimen consisted of tenofovir, embrycitamine, and raltegravir. Now, raltegravir is an integrase inhibitor that has few, if any, drug interactions with the currently approved hepatitis C direct acting agents. As a result, for her, the treatment options included either sofosbuvir, ribavirin, or sofosbuvir, semeprovir, which is a protease inhibitor. Now, semeprovir, the protease inhibitor, does have many drug-drug interactions with many of the HIV medications because it is metabolized through the cytochrome TYP3A4 pathway. As a result, semeprovir cannot be used with most of the protease inhibitors, particularly when they are boosted with ritonavir, cannot be used with the NNRTIs such as efavirenz, and cannot be used with maraviroc. As a result, the only ART regimens that can be used along with semeprovir are the integrase inhibitor raltegravir and the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor rilpivirin. This patient also wanted very short duration of treatment. She did not want to be on therapy for a very long period of time. As you know, photon 1 required treatment for 24 weeks for the co-infected patients. So I discussed the data of the COSMO study with her, and the COSMO study looked at sofosbuvir and semeprovir for 12 weeks among HIV-negative patients. And although at the time that I saw the patient, we did not have data in the co-infected patients, because of the lack of drug-drug interaction and because of the fact that the COSMO study had SVR rates in excess of 90%, it was actually 93 to 96%, she really wanted to take that treatment option. And this was also aligned with the ASLD guidelines that do recommend sofosbuvir and semeprovir as a treatment option among patients co-infected with HIV and hepatitis C. We also discussed the possibility of waiting at that time until the combination, fixed dose combination, ledipasvir, sofosbuvir would become available. But at that time, she did not want to wait. So we ended up starting her on sofosbuvir 400 milligrams once daily and semaprovir 150 milligrams once daily for a total duration of 12 weeks of therapy. She did quite well on therapy. She had few, if any, treatment-related side effects. We repeated her hepatitis C viral load at weeks 4 and 12 during treatment. She remained undetectable throughout the hepatitis C treatment course. At the end of treatment, we repeated her viral load week 4 after treatment and week 12 after treatment was discontinued, and she remains undetectable to date. In a sense, she attained the SVR-12 end-of-treatment and cure outcome, so she was very happy. Now, you should note that it did take us a while for us to get those medications approved through her insurance company because she did have a form of HMO plan, but 
given the bulk of evidence that we have supporting the need for hepatitis C treatment, we were able to get it approved despite the cost. Well, thank you for that case and that discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Shobha Swaminathan in just a moment. Hello, I'm Jeannie Curley, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of eHIV Review. If you found us on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins eHIV Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit and nursing contact hours with expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with HIV. By subscribing, you'll receive eHIV literature review newsletters and practice-based podcasts like this one directly through your email. There are no fees to subscribe or to receive continuing education credit for these activities. For more information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest today is Dr. Shobha Swaminathan from the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And our topic is current issues in HIV-HCV co-infection. We've been discussing some of the new information Dr. Swaminathan and Dr. Deva reviewed in their newsletter issue and how it can impact clinical practice. Uh, So let's continue now, if you would, doctor, by looking at another patient. A 51-year-old man with HIV and hepatitis C virus co-infection and controlled hypothyroidism is currently taking lamivudine and abacavir, ritonavir boosted darunavir, and atofoquone. His HIV viral load has been well controlled for over three years, and his most current CD4 count was 129 cells per cubic millimeter. His hepatitis C viral load is 124,853 international units per mil, and he has genotype 1B infection. Recent ultrasound of the liver shows no cirrhosis. Issues to consider to determine the optimal therapy for this patient's HCV infection. Among the things to be considered for this particular patient are, like we discussed in the first case, the level of HIV control. Despite excellent control of his HIV infection, the CD4 remains low, less than 200 cells per cubic millimeter. If you look at all the studies in the co-infected populations, they have almost all included patients with CD4 greater than 200. Photon 1, turquoise 1, C-worthy, photon 2, all of them had minimum CD4 of greater than 200. Eradicate was an investigator-initiated study conducted by the NIH where the lowest CD4 count was 114 cells per cubic millimeter. And in that study, despite the low CD4 count, treatment responses were excellent. The other point to note is that this patient is taking ritonavir-boosted darunavir which would make it difficult for us to use the protease inhibitor currently approved, simeprovir, as part of its hepatitis C treatment regimen because of the drug-drug interaction. The third point to note that he has hepatitis C genotype 1B infection. A few months ago, it was felt that baseline testing for resistance may be important, particularly for genotype 1A, but those data have not been substantiated in subsequent studies. So at this time, for his genotype 1B infection, a treatment regimen that would not have drug-drug interaction would be the most applicable for this patient. It's also important to note that the reason we can now treat patients with very low CD4 count is that 
in the absence of interferon as part of the treatment regimen, there is much less concern of interferon-induced bone marrow suppression, causing a further reduction in the CD4 cell count. The timing of the HCV treatment, in the sense of treat now or wait, how would you determine that? The timing of hepatitis C virus treatment is dependent on the severity of liver disease for the patient. For instance, people with more advanced liver disease as observed either by liver biopsy or with any of the previously discussed tests, FibroSure or FibroScan, would have a more urgent need to treat the hepatitis C virus-related liver disease. That being said, patient motivation and interest are also key factors because they are in turn a marker for medication adherence, which will have a big impact on the success of any hepatitis C virus treatment. So for this particular patient, although the ultrasound of his liver did not show any cirrhosis of the liver, the fact that he was very motivated to start treatment and not wait any longer was a big factor in my decision to start him on hepatitis C virus treatment. So what was your ultimate treatment recommendation for this patient? So after discussing various options with the patient, we decided to treat the patient with cefosfavir and ribavirin. And the data to use that comes from the JAMA paper that was discussed in the newsletter. That was based on photon-1 study, an open-label study looking at cefosfavir and ribavirin for a total duration of 24 weeks. The reason we chose this regimen was because the patient was unable to change the antiretroviral therapy because of previously archived HIV-resistant mutations in his past. Hence, we were unable to use semeprovir as part of his treatment regimen, and the only other treatment combination available for use outside of clinical trials was cefosfavir and ribavirin for 24 weeks. That being said, if the patient had come to me today, it is certainly possible that we might have chosen to prescribe the fixed-dose combination of ledipasvir and cefosfavir instead of cefosfavir ribavirin. And the patient's overall response to this treatment, doctor? Overall, the patient tolerated treatment very well. He had few, if any, side effects on treatment. At week four of treatment, he had a negative hepatitis C viral load, and he remained negative throughout his treatment course. Around week eight to 10 of treatment, he developed anemia, which was most likely related to ribavirin. His hemoglobin dropped at the lowest point in time to 9.5 grams per deciliter. At that point, we reduced his ribavirin dose to 400 milligrams per day, and we did not start him on erythropoietin. The reason we decided to do that was based on data from Photon 1, where 15% of patients developed ribavirin dose-related anemia. In that study, anemia was managed with ribavirin dose reduction alone without the use of erythropoietin and growth factors to stimulate it. This did not have an impact on SVR treatment response rates, and patients, despite ribavirin dose reduction, did just as well as those who maintained the ribavirin dose. Hence, in our patient, we only reduced his ribavirin dose, and as his hemoglobin improved, we were able to increase his ribavirin back to the 1,000 milligram that he first started with. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. We've got time for one more patient, so if you would, please. The patient is a 60-year-old man with well-controlled HIV infection. He has advanced liver disease from his chronic hepatitis C virus infection. Two years ago, he was diagnosed with localized hepatocellular carcinoma and underwent successful radiofrequency ablation and has since had no recurrence of his HCC. 
He has declined HCV treatment in the past due to concerns about interferon-related side effects. His HCV viral load is 395,000, and his genotype is 1A. Other pertinent laboratory results include a low albumin 2.4 grams per deciliter, elevated total bilirubin of 2.5 milligrams per deciliter, serum creatinine of 1 milligram per deciliter, and an INR of 1.3. He also has elevated liver enzymes. His AST is 105 international units, and ALT is 65. His HIV is well-controlled, with his HIV viral load less than 20 and his CD4 at 513 cells per cubic millimeter. So, a co-infected patient with compromised liver function due to hepatitis C, as well as a history of hepatocellular carcinoma. What's your approach to treating this patient, doctor? We should approach patients that have signs of advanced liver disease very cautiously. Some of the things that we can use to gauge the extent of liver disease include calculation of MELD. Now, MELD is a calculated score that stands for Model for End-Stage Liver Disease. It was initially developed for a prediction of death after TIPS procedures in patients with advanced liver disease and has since been used to predict post-transplant mortality. Papers have shown that even among patients infected with HIV and hepatitis C virus, the MELD score can be an independent predictor of transplant mortality, suggesting that MELD can be used in this particular patient to calculate his risk. Now, the MELD score includes the creatinine, the bilirubin, and the INR, and it also takes into account whether a patient received dialysis in the past week or not. In our particular patient, his MELD score was less than 10, suggesting that despite what appears to be advanced liver disease, his MELD score is low, suggesting a very low likelihood of death in the next few months. Are there data that support using the newer direct-acting antivirals in a patient like this? There is a lot of data that has emerged in the past 12 to 24 months for the use of these new direct-acting agents in cirrhotics, both compensated and decompensated cirrhotics. In the newsletter article, there is a paper that looks at the use of the cladosphere and NS5A replication complex inhibitor that has pan-genotypic activity across genotypes 1, 2, and 3. Although that study included hepatitis C mono-infected patients alone, the treatment experience group in that study did have more than 50% of patients with moderate to advanced liver disease. And even in those group of patients, the SVR12 response rates were in excess of 95%. And it's also important to note that use of ribavirin in this group of patients did not necessarily improve their hepatitis C treatment responses. Other studies, such as photon-1 and photon-2 in HIV-HCV co-infected patients, have included anywhere between 10 to 25% of patients with cirrhosis and have both shown that treatment can be safely administered with these direct-acting agents in these complicated patients. It is, however, important to note that in the photon-1 study, SVR rates were somewhat inferior in the cirrhotics. For example, it was only 65% in those with cirrhosis compared to 88% in those without. And the same holds true if you look at subgenotypes for genotype 1A and 1B, where among cirrhotics, SVR rates were 62 or 75% respectively. And for the same genotype 1A and 1B in non-cirrhotic, response rates were much higher, 87 to 100%.
There were also two studies, Solar One and Seaworthy, that was discussed in this newsletter that included patients with advanced liver disease that were successfully treated with these newer agents. Given these data, patients with advanced liver disease can be successfully and safely treated with the newer direct-acting agents. So, in the patient you presented, HIV-HCV co-infected, compromised liver function, history of HCC, what were your treatment recommendations and what was the outcome? I discussed with my patient the two treatment options. At that time, the only option available was cefosbuvir semeprevir or cefosbuvir ribavirin, or we could have waited for lidipasvir cefosbuvir. With the evidence that I discussed with the patient, he wanted to wait for the fewest number of pills with the fewest drug-drug interactions, so he decided to wait for the fixed-dose combination, lidipasvir cefosbuvir. And when it came in the market, we did start him on therapy. He has been on therapy at this point for six weeks, and he has had a negative viral load at week four of treatment. I will have to wait for an additional eight weeks for him to complete therapy, a total of 12 weeks, and then 12 more weeks post-treatment to get a treatment outcome. Thus far, though, he has tolerated treatment extremely well and has had no treatment-related side effects. I want to thank you for today's patience and discussion, doctor. Uh, To wrap things up, let's review what we talked about today in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the use of HCV direct-acting antiviral agents in the treatment of HIV-HCV co-infection. I think overall, the HIV-HCV co-infected patients' treatment response rates with the newer direct-acting agents are comparable to those of the hepatitis C virus mono-infected patients. Providers and physicians taking care of the co-infected patients should be aware of the drug interactions between these new hepatitis C virus DAAs and the HIV treatment regimens to ensure that they are compatible with each other. Drug interactions are particularly concerning with the use of some protease inhibitors such as imeprevir that is currently commercially available and the new protease inhibitor, peritaprevir and ombitasvir, which uses ritonavir as a boosting agent. Both of those groups use the cytochrome CYP3A4 enzyme system to metabolize, which is similar to many of the HIV protease inhibitors and some non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Hence, treatment regimens using both of these should be used in caution with the full awareness of the drug interaction data. And our second learning objective, the effective management of HIV-HCV co-infected patients who have previously been treated for HCV infection. As discussed in the podcast, I think there is a wealth of data that is emerging that despite previous treatment experience, either with interferon-based therapies alone or even with the use of first-generation protease inhibitors, patients can still be successfully treated with a combination of the newer direct-acting agents, and treatment failure in the past should no longer be a contraindication to treatment options with the newer HCV DAAs. Uh, And finally, the evidence basis for treating special populations with HCV infection, like patients with advanced liver disease. Although the data are limited, there are certainly enough data to support the use of hepatitis C virus treatment in co-infected patients, even with cirrhosis, both compensated and decompensated liver disease, because these patients are likely to benefit the most from successful hepatitis C virus treatment.
Dr. Shobha Swaminathan from the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. Thank you for sharing your clinical expertise in this eHIV review podcast. Bob, thank you so much for inviting me to do this podcast. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eHIV Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners whose work or practice includes treating patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eHIV review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.